Welcome to American Dissident Voices. I'm Kevin Alfred Strom. We are broadcasting Vanessa Neubauer's audio version of the first book ever published by Dr. Pierce. His translation of Dietrich Eckert's Bolshevism from Moses to Lenin. Now we present part four, the concluding section of this insightful book. What are the temporal and spiritual goals of the Jews? What is their psychology? How do they see themselves, their own parasitic nature, and the world? You will be amazed at the answers given in this philosophical dialogue. Now we begin. I give you Vanessa Neubauer. 7. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight every one against his brother, and every one against his neighbor. He ground out, what hatred, what demonic hatred. That's not human. What is it? That, my friend, I joked, is the geniality of the heart, of which the Jew, Fritz Kahn, has spoken, through which Israel has become the ethical mother of mankind. These fellows are really quaint in their impudence. Kahn has called Moses, quote, an almost unique phenomenon in the history of civilized peoples, a national hero without weapons, end quote. At the same time, he reproves us with the remark that, quote, on stormy nights, the distressed wail of widows may be heard around the bronze heroes of our marketplaces, end quote. That is, around the statues of Prince Eugene, Marshal Blucher, and so on. I wonder what he thinks Moses used to massacre the Egyptian firstborn, if not weapons. Gumdrops, perhaps? Or were they smothered to death from sheer love? Apparently, we are to believe that the purple folk consisted entirely of babysitters and wet nurses. Well, all these fellows operate the same way, at least. They don't even bother to deny anything. Instead, they flatly maintain exactly the opposite. That tactic seems to work quite well with our men of learning, he growled. The Jews say whatever they please. It is all gospel to our scholars. They wouldn't think of trying to verify anything. The fact that it appears in print is enough for them. A certain Jewess called the Talmud, quote, a grandiose, monumental work of the Spirit. End quote. A, quote, heroic monument of ideas to which the millennia have given the breath of their experience. End quote. Immediately upon encountering such a gem, the German professor whips out his notebook. And the next day, his students have devoured and digested the new tidbit. That's the way it goes in our gymnasia. They are all designed, so they say, to turn out nothing but geniuses. Instead, one lackey after another is graduated. A few hours spent browsing in the Talmud, I proceeded, is quite sufficient to remove any doubt about the Jews. 
It is understandable that they have only the most inordinate praise for the book. When they peep into it, their own peculiar nature peers back out at them. And that, of course, is the greatest source of joy for them. Thus, in essence, every Jew is a Talmudist, even if he has never looked at the Talmud. It makes no difference when it was written. In fact, it needn't have been written at all. The first Jew comprised all its essential ingredients. The Jewish leaders fully understand that, but they only say it metaphorically. The Talmud is an unimpeachable authority, trumpeted the rabbi, Dr. Gronemann, before a Hanover tribunal in 1894. Quote, the legal doctrines of the Talmud have precedence, end quote. A Professor Cohen imperiously told a criminal court in Marburg in 1888. And, he added, now pay attention to this, that it applied also to non-believing Jews who, however, were nonetheless still a part of the Jewish community. Quote, since they acknowledge the moral doctrines of the Talmud. End quote a masterpiece. From time to time, the fellows blurt out a real secret in their babbling, but we just don't pay attention. Quote, Whatever it is in the Talmud, we acknowledge to have absolute precedence over the whole law of Moses. End quote. A group of so-called Reformed Jews testified in Paris in 1860 with the concurrence of the Alliance Israelite. And a rabbi... Dr. Rahmer has written in Piedras Encyclopedia that the Shul Aruch, a kind of Talmud for home use, has been, quote, taken on by the Israelitish community as an authoritative guide for religious practice, end quote. Taken on? Such a wag. Pretty soon I'll be taking on the features of Dietrich Eckert. Lord, he said, whoever doesn't become sickened and nauseated upon making a closer acquaintance with the Talmud can put himself on display in a circus sideshow. The local sideshow, I remarked, has certain limits on the degree of abnormality it will exhibit. The young student from Tübingen, who could gulp down half a dozen toes with gusto, has been its greatest attraction till now. No one, though, has a stomach capable of digesting even this one passage from the Talmud. Quote, Rabbi Yohanan said the penis of Rabbi Ishmael was as large as a six-cob wineskin. According to others, three cobs. The penis of Rabbi Papa was as large as one of the baskets of the inhabitants of Harpania. End quote. The high-minded competitive zeal of the three old rabbis could knock an unprepared person off his chair. One finds a whole series of such pleasantries in this magnificent example of a religious book, he said disgustedly. The real clincher, however, is that non-Jewish girls, who are less than three years and one day old, are considered suitable for rabbis. Since Moses had written... But all the women children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. 
namely for the rabbis. The most abominable perversity and the most tedious syllable thrashing in the same breath. What goes on within Jewish heads must really be frightful. They, I returned, are of a contrary opinion on that. Otherwise, their mirror image, the Talmud, wouldn't inform us that, quote, the Israelites are more pleasing before God than the angels, end quote. Or that, quote, the world was created on behalf of the Israelites alone, end quote. Or that, quote, whoever slaps a Jew in the face has struck God himself, end quote. Or that, quote, the sun illuminates the earth and the rain makes it fertile only because Israelites live on it. End quote. And more of the same sort of modesty. I really doubt that there is any sort of medical encyclopedia which contains terms suitable for describing the Jewish megalomania, he said, but what an incredible talent they have for disguising it. Their book, Syrac, I completed, howls, quote, Terrify all peoples. Lift your hand up against strangers, that they may see your power. The fire of wrath must burn them. Crush the heads of the princes who are our enemies. End quote. And the Shulchan Aruch rages. Quote, Pour out, O Lord, your fury over the Goyim, who do not know you, and over the kingdoms which do not invoke your name. Pursue them in wrath and extinguish them beneath God's heaven. End quote. They make the same threat in both places, with the distinction that the Shulchan Aruch emphasizes that all must be exterminated who do not swear on Jehovah. And with such an abominable moral doctrine on his conscience, he began to boil. That marvel of modern Jewry Moses Mendelssohn had the impudence to assert that, quote, dominion over the earth belongs by right to Jewry, end quote, because of their religion. As a trained Talmudist, he certainly knew his way around in the whole vile thing. Those extracts we have just quoted are only a tiny fraction, but he still, oh, this lying, this utterly mendacious pack, the very essence of the lie. All Berlin, I said, buzzed with praise for the wise, for the noble Moses. But Goethe wasn't deceived. Jewish trivia was his comment on the pious trickery. It struck no one as odd that the incomparable Moses philosophized himself in the twinkling of an eye from a simple private tutor to the powerfully wealthy founder of the banking house of Mendelssohn, thus avoiding by a wide detour the eye of the needle. This benefactor of mankind slyly promoted the idea that the Jewish people constitute a religious community only. Today, this still constitutes a favorite nostrum of the Jews. A certain Dr. Ruppin has revealed why. Quote, Special laws against the Jews, end quote. He tells us as he chuckles and rubs his hands together, 
quote, have always been directed against the religious aspects of Jewry, since this sphere of activity provided the only easily conceivable target for legislation. Anti-Semitism has never really been inimicable to the Jewish religion, but has been indifferent to it. End quote. So, we now have an admission that their religion serves a very useful diversionary purpose. Anyone, however, who has become acquainted with it has found out that what the Jews call their religion coincides exactly with their character. That's what they themselves say, he said. They are incessantly boasting, too, that their religion is such a masterful creation that it stands alone in the world. Then bring the Talmud forward. It contains the Jewish religion in its purest form. Theology, dogmatics, morality, everything together in the same place. Why do they hold back the magnificent book so nervously? If indeed, quote, the millennia have given the breath of its existence, end quote, to it. As born benefactors of mankind, they should have long since made it accessible to the general populace. Instead, it still hasn't been completely translated, even today. And who in the devil has read what there is of it? One would think they are afraid some medieval church is still waiting to burn it for heresy. Some religion, this wallowing in filth, this hate, this malice, this arrogance, this hypocrisy, this pettifogging, this incitement to deceit and murder. Is that a religion? Then there has never been anyone more religious than the devil himself. It is the Jewish essence, the Jewish character, period. Luther, I interjected, expressed his opinion of it plainly enough. He urges us to burn the synagogues and Jewish schools and to heap earth on the remains, quote, so that no man would ever again see one stone or cinder of them, end quote. God would forgive us for what we formerly had tolerated through our ignorance. Quote, I hadn't known it myself, end quote. He wrote, but now that we were aware of what went on, we dared not, at any price, protect these buildings, quote, wherein they slander, curse, spit on, and revile both Christ and us, end quote. We could hardly speak more strongly ourselves. He also urged the destruction of their houses, for they carried on there the same way as in their schools. Quote, Some may feel, end quote, he complained, quote, that my judgment is too harsh. It is, if anything, too lenient, for I have seen their writings, end quote. Our school inspectors apparently haven't seen them, nor have our charmers or wizards. Burning their synagogues, I am afraid, would have been of little avail, he shrugged, even if there had never been a synagogue, a Jewish school, an Old Testament, or a Talmud, the Jewish spirit would still have been there and had its effect. It has always been there. Every Jew ever born has embodied it, and that is even more pronounced with the so-called enlightened Jews.
Heine belonged, certainly, among the most enlightened. But he had just as much insane arrogance as the greasiest Galician kike. Moses Mendelssohn passed for a downright wonder of wisdom. Yet, lo and behold, he found it actually shocking that the Jews still didn't have the dominion over the earth which was due them. From long years of experience, I brought out, Dostoevsky depicted the hair-raising conceit of the Russian Jew. For a long time he lived with all kinds of convicts, including several Jews, sleeping on the same wooden bunks with them. Everyone treated these Jews in a friendly manner, he reported, not even taking offense at their raving mad manner of praying. Probably their own religion had once been like that, thought the Russians to themselves, and they quietly let the Jews do as they pleased. But, on the other hand, the Jews haughtily rejected the Russians, didn't want to eat with them, and looked down on them. And where was this? In a Siberian prison. All over Russia, Dostoevsky found this antipathy and loathing of the Jews for the natives. Nowhere, however, did the Russian people resent their behavior, indulgently believing it to be a part of the Jewish religion. Yes, indeed. And what a religion, he said scornfully. It is the character of a people which determines the nature of their religion, not the other way around. Dostoevsky, I continued, was compassion itself, but, like Christ, he took exception to the Jews. With foreboding, he asked what would happen in Russia if ever the Jews should get the upper hand there. Would they even approximately give the natives the same rights they themselves enjoyed? Would they likewise allow them to pray in the manner they wished, or would they not simply make slaves of them? Still worse, wouldn't they skin and fleece them? Wouldn't they even exterminate them, as they had so often done with other peoples in their history? Ah, could our workers but share his forebodings, particularly those who hope for salvation from the Soviets? He cried, famine, mass graves, slavery, Jewish whips. Whoever goes on strike is hanged. Come hither, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. How they whistle, the dogs. And how fine that sounds, in front of the curtain. Behind it, however, lurk the pampered, purple folk, the Red Army, the dregs of non-Jewish humanity. The toll of Russians sacrificed since the beginning of Bolshevik domination is estimated by the authorities at about 30 million, I answered. Those who weren't summarily executed fell to famine and disease. Were they all bourgeois? Only an imbecile could believe that. Who among us, then, has the most to suffer? The thousands who every day stand for long hours at their various occupations. Capitalists are hardly a majority among them. But that hasn't dawned on our workers. In their eagerness to be the masters, they let themselves be led about by the nose like children. Ebert has thundered against capitalism his whole life. Now he is president. And, at every street corner, banks sprout from the ground like mushrooms. That is certainly a fact. 
Everyone sees it. Anyone can reach out and touch it. But does that lead anyone to smell a rat? Not on your life. The first thing the Jew Eisner did after the revolution was have the banks guarded by the army. Capitalists smuggled their enormous hordes of money out of the country for months, and he didn't raise a finger to stop them. He felt it was more important to travel to the Socialist Congress in Switzerland and there place the entire guilt for the World War on Germany. Do penance, he said, and the French will forgivingly clasp you to their hearts. Quite likely. Experience has gloriously confirmed it. The same Eisner, he nodded, who, at the beginning of the war, sent a flood of telegrams to the other social democratic leaders, entreating them to remain true to the Kaiser. A disgraceful stab in the back must be avoided at all costs, said he. It went like that until the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Up till then, all German Jews were inspired monarchists. But then came the about-face. The Moor had done his duty and crushed Tsarist Russia. Now for him to crush himself. The rest is silence. Visible to all eyes, the Jew also made his bid in Germany. O oh, workers, to let yourselves be thus deceived. Things are different than which innocents let themselves dream. The Communist Party in Germany still has fewer than a quarter of a million members. Yet it owns over 50 newspapers. What that costs is simply incalculable. Millions. Who pays these enormous sums? We National Socialists have our hands full just keeping our one Beobachter going. If we had an arrangement with the Jews, we would have a prodigious number of party newspapers in an instant. Are there comrades who doubt that? I'd like to meet one. And look here. This is the incredible thing. They know that the Jews are secretly behind things but they act as if it weren't so at all. Is that honest? Can that lead to a happy outcome? To rush to destruction unsuspectingly is one thing, but to do it knowingly and to single out one's grimmest enemy as an accomplice is another. I'd like to know, I remarked, what the comrades would say if one proved to them in black and white that the Junkers or the big industrialists have had a secret moral philosophy of the most abominable sort since the time X. Their rage would be unimaginable. Aha! Everyone would roar. With principles like that, it is no wonder the devils torment us so. Imagine that. How can anyone be that mean and vile? The whole bunch of them should be exterminated. They would carry on like that, as if possessed, and rightly so. But, on the other hand, when one shows them that the Jews have, in their official religious books, the most hair-raising statements about the plundering and murder of all Gentiles, it makes no difference at all to them. They either dispute it, or, when that seems hopeless, say that most Jews haven't been that religious for a long time, 
and don't concern themselves with that stuff anymore. It never occurs to them that the Jewish character is the source of their vile literature. But this, he said, tops it all. All. And I mean all. Social injustices of any significance in the world today can be traced back to the subterranean influence of the Jews. The workers seek, therefore, to eliminate with the help of the Jews those evils which none other than the Jews themselves have consciously and deliberately established. One can imagine what kind of help they will receive. Behold the modest Joseph, I rejoined. His influence on the Pharaoh caused the Egyptians dreadful distress, from which they later thought they would free themselves with the help of Moses. I must admit that the episode does not lack a certain grim humor. 8. The truth, he said, is, indeed, as you once wrote, one can only understand the Jew when one knows what his ultimate goal is. And that goal is, beyond world domination, the annihilation of the world. He must wear down all the rest of mankind, he persuades himself, in order to prepare a paradise on earth. He has made himself believe that only he is capable of this great task. And, considering his ideas of paradise, that is certainly so. But one sees, if only in the means which he employs, that he is secretly driven to something else. While he pretends to himself to be elevating mankind, he torments men to despair, to madness, to ruin. If a halt is not ordered, he will destroy all men. His nature compels him to that goal, even though he dimly realizes that he must thereby destroy himself. There is no other way for him. He must act thus. This realization of the unconditional dependence of his own existence upon that of his victims appears to me to be the main cause for his hatred. To be obliged to try and annihilate us with all his might, but at the same time to suspect that that must lead inevitably to his own ruin, therein it lies, if you will, the tragedy of Lucifer. Here, the notes of Dietrich Eckert break off. You've just heard Part 4, the conclusion of Dr. William Pierce's translation of Dietrich Eckert's Bolshevism from Moses to Lenin, read by Vanessa Neubauer. This fine book is now available in its original National Vanguard Books edition. This is the same authorized 1999 edition, production of which was overseen by Dr. Pierce himself that has been selling used on Amazon for between $30 and $360 as a collector's item and is not to be confused with later illegal print-on-demand pirated editions. This book should be in the personal libraries of all serious students of National Socialism and activists for our European race. 
support the work of the National Alliance and get a better deal than if you purchase the bootlegged edition. Order online by visiting natall.com slash pierce. That's N-A-T-A-L-L dot com slash pierce.